My name is Athena Kabenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, a writer and podcaster and I'm also a parent which is lovely and it's fantastic but it gets a bit boring trying to find things to talk about with a two-year-old and a seven-month-old so to make life go easier and more interestingly I invite someone around to keep my company and today I've got a, I've got a legend. Um, today I've got um, I've got the Cockney Prince himself, oh. <laughs> Quincy. What's going on? Yeah, man. So right? such a legend. You just go by one name. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of my it's one of my names. My real, one of my real names. One of your real names. How many real names do you have? Well, I won't say I won't say it on air. I said it off air. My first name, but Quincy is one of my middle names. So nobody knows your first name. Your first name, other than very your, few. your. It's very few. Okay. So if you're around certain people or family members. And they would like they would naturally shout because I've had this before where they've like someone's known me from young. Yeah. And they call that my government name. <laughs> and they're, and they're, and they're like, who's this one thing? Oh, that's me. <laughs> so Quincy's on Quincy's on your debit card. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. All right. Cool. So that's uh, one of the initials. That's one of your initials. And why did you choose Quincy to go by? Is it it's one of my it? names? No, but like, why of all your names, why Quincy? Because the government name, saying it on stage. It, it's just, it didn't have that ring. Ah, so it was a stage. It was a stage thing. It was like I yeah, want to yeah. be. I want to be called to the stage and being called Quincy. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, it, it, it just didn't have that ring to and it. And is that from your DJ days or like a comedian? DJ thing? days. Ah, uh, see. And so originally, did you just want to be a DJ? I, I want to do some form of entertainment, really. Yeah. I mean, I've always enjoyed presenting. Um, the DJing was just naturally. Everyone was DJing. I've always done like before that was doing dancing and. You dancing? Yeah, hey, I used to body pop man back then. Okay, let's talk about this. You used to body pop. <laughs> was you in like a dance crew? Uh, yeah, yeah, the waste, waste man rockers. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Were you really called the waste man rockers? No, it wasn't. They were really, really waste man. It was, I, I done it. It was just, it was just like, it, it was the fads, you know what I mean? When, when, um, when, when dance, popping was out. When was this? Electro. When was this? Like, this, date This was late 80s. All right. Late 80s when the electro was big. Okay. And everybody, it's like a new, it was a fad for the young people at the time, you know what I mean? And which is a, an amazing time of, of, of my life because you found young people just in p different parts of the street just breakdancing. Right, was you it that I mean? cliche, like they had like the, the stereo on their shoulders? Yeah, very, very, very yeah. much Radio Raheem. Yeah. I remember I took one of my, um, and I won't call it the W box, but I took one of my big blasters. Um, uh, to Barbados at the time, and uh, I, I, I took it on the uh, on the plane. And it was like, is that hand luggage now? <laughs> <laughs> That's how big it was. It was that big. You're gonna have to put this in the hole. Like, so, did you was it was the plan to be a professional dancer? And no, was that your first no, taste of performing was, in front of people? It was just my. I've, as a performer, no, my first performing in front of people was me doing sports. Yeah. So I've always got, so I've always performed in front of crowds. I've always been naturally good at sports, and um, anything which I found myself adapting to or veering towards, it was just people was just involved. So from football to uh, uh, boxing and then the, the DJing just done it because it was a hot, it was a, it was fun my cousins done it yeah and then the dancing my cousins done it i used to go to different places and watch them dance would you uh, would you ever revisit it would you ever go back nah nah the dancing no is there any evidence of the dancing those any videos hell no 
as it was good it was in the days of when i was um recording stuff wasn't the in thing and it's, it's a beautiful moment as well because you live for the moment yeah and just going back to what i was saying earlier on there was a time where you see young people now hanging hanging around or not doing anything there wasn't a part of london that you didn't see young people practicing dancing yeah and it was guys who can have it you know what i mean but we was all different parts depending where you're from everyone was practicing dancing or break dancing there was music play and that was people's six weeks holidays yeah 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 it was unified i was like people i remember my summer holidays i was never in the house and i come from like a fairly suburban area but it was just you just you just don't stay in your yard you go out and you do something like our thing was riding bikes so we were on a bike gang so we were just we were just like just ride around and i can't even i couldn't even tell you what we did but we just were just gallivant yeah i am um, we did have bikes when i was growing up Let's get let's get nicked. So we just hanged around. And what did, did you go out Cannon Town? Cannon Town. Okay. Very point. Very point. Cannon Town. Okay. Very notorious area. What at the time? Not now. Not now. At the time, it was very. I remember I saw my um. Let's see, heard my first pub shooting. Wow. <laughs> pub. <laughs> How old were you when you did that? When you heard Eight. pub shooting. You were eight years old, and did you know instantly what it was? Or did you have to ask someone? What's that noise? <laughs> Someone's trying to get in the house. They just found out it was pub wars. It was pub wars. Wow. So we was the, was the, the, the villains at the time. And that's white working class, like, villains. We're not talking about what people... Pub think. wars. So you see how our young boys, like, go into certain areas in this tension? Yeah. So Hackney boys won't go to Tottenham or... It was pubs... For the old West Ham, like if you was from Cannon Town, you couldn't go in a pub in Poplar. Yeah. I mean, you could until you, until you opened your mouth. I mean, they were known, so there were pub wars, and there uh, was quite a few shootings. And did you did you feel like you were being being coming from like a black family in the area? Did you feel like you was in in amongst someone else's business, or did you feel part of it? Does that make sense? Like, did it feel like you well, the the from? guys who owned the pubs at the time and like oh, I went to school with so. I didn't know they were naughty. I just knew them from a different ilk. Yeah. So one of the guys I grew up with, and I still, if I see him today, brothers, his, his dad was was a big boy in the ICF. What's the ICF? ICF was inner city firm West Ham. Wow. Okay, that's like a big gang. Yeah, that was like it's notorious. Yeah. So you got guys like um, uh, um, Cass Pennant. Okay. So he's Cullen Town. So. I, I went to school with their, 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 their sons or their daughters. So when, as young people, you just go around someone's house, isn't it? And my dad wasn't really, mum and dad, they was part of the community, but no one really troubled us. Yeah. And my dad, my dad was, I think my dad was a betting man. So my dad knew those guys would bet. And it was very much, but it's kind of weird. As you get older, you realise, you know what I mean? The guys then, as much as you saw them, they didn't really give you any hassle. It was like, you don't really like black people. As you get older, you realise, well, because it's like, well, you. I, I remember hearing things like, oh, you're all right. Yes, other people. Yeah, you're it's fine. The, the yeah. So I, I remember distinctively um, when the first rave of Brixton riots kicked off. And I remember there was those, as a young person, about 12, I remember... It was all over TV and obviously the negative press what black young black women were getting. And uh, <clears throat> I remember having a conversation, just chatting about it. And it was like, 
Oh, I was because all the guys are hanging we were black and white, but we were cotties. Yeah. And I remember the old one of some of the older lot was saying, "Which fit this is Brixton." And that's what, and I didn't really understand. Yeah, and you think, and then you look back on it, and you realise, oh, these guys think I'm just like I'm, I'm special. Like they don't normally like black people; they just like me. And the minute there's more than there's more of us or whatever, there's going to be trouble. And I remember uh, my cousin having a a birthday party, a 16th birthday party, and because like we travel, so there were family, friends from different areas, Canning Town or. For a skate at different areas. Obviously, our friends was um, had family for a skate. They came down to the party, and I remember specifically that he says, "Right, my cousin said because he was no near. He goes, oh, the so and so twins are coming down. I won't mention their names, but there was a, there was a group of guys from the area or custom house. They were saying they might come down, and I remember it was like literally as much as you're sorting out your music, you we had to sort out. There was enough black people. So you imagine enough black people in the area, predominantly white area. Yeah. It was like, there was tension, but it was, we had to be smart about it. You suddenly felt a little bit unsafe when you... Never felt unsafe, but I was aware because obviously the white guys we knew, they knew us. Yeah. But all it took was like some of the guys from outside the area coming into the area. We, we, uh, if they didn't know them, no one's going to shout, oh, I know Quincy, or I know Mark, or whoever. I mean, when you got thinking, they just see the black guy. Yeah. And, and it was tough times. I could, I didn't, I didn't have parties, especially at college, because they wouldn't come to Canada Town. Yeah, because it was, like, it was just a rough area yeah, for it was people. Like, oh, out. Come originally, I pick you up. Uh, Canada Town. So I guess uh, my... meet me at. <laughs> <laughs> so you do you still live in Canada Town? Uh, you... My mum. Your mum does. Okay, so how long did you stay there for? Did you get out as soon as you could, or did you did you stay? There no, no, I I got kicked out of my ass. I got kicked out, so I left. I've always been in Newham. Yeah. But um, I left my uh, my mum's when I was 16. And can you talk about why you had to leave your mum's? Because I was a dickhead. Yeah. Was, I, I thought I was big. I was that young teenage boy who thought he was bigger than his boots. I thought I knew everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Living my life and didn't want to listen to the, the words from my parents. You know what I mean? And it was just like the ultimate thing is I woke up one day coming in early hours in the morning went to pour some cornflakes and I think something happened I went to get some sugar I mean, by the time I came back I tasted um, I tasted my cornflakes and it tasted different and my mum literally put Ajax in it <gasps> <laughs> she put Ajax <laughs> and I was like I'm going to kill you I'm going to kill you here and I was like whoop time to go <laughs> She put eight, was it? She put Ajax in the milk <laughs> and she stirred it, so it blended in. And the funny thing is, she could have just put vinegar, <laughs> but no, she had to put something that could kill you. And I wanted to put Ajax in it because at the time she was doing the washing, doing something, yeah. So it, was, it was near her, and she must have been so confident about your routine that she knew that it would be like you having that milk and no one else, thank god. But that was her saying, I've had enough of you. Do you think, do you understand why she did that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I was supposed to do earlier. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I wasn't. I was you look back now, and it's just like, God, I can't do that. But I was reading something the other day, and this is true. Your brain doesn't mature until you're 25. Did you know this? I think it's different for, for boys and girls. Yeah, with boys, it's like 59, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's when you retire. But yeah. it's by the time you're 20, 
I'm, I'm, it's probably not universal and you're probably right it might be that based on gender and all kinds of things but generally speaking your brain um, and its capacity to make decisions and to be rational and to be thought through you don't have that fully um, you're not at full capacity to, to have the, uh, like a, an established way of thinking until you're 25 which explains a lot actually yeah. when you think about all the decisions that you've made I think about decisions that I've made and I've been a fairly sensible person my whole life really but I've done some mad things, especially in my early 20s. And I'm like, yeah. you, well, like proportionately, not so mad that my mum would want to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard now for me to say I've been mad when you said your mum wants to murder you. Because it's like, oh, okay, maybe. <laughs> there you have an image of somebody. I've, I just can't imagine. The first time I met, I've never met, visioned you to be too safe. So I'll tell you something funny. Like pe- people who know me from different parts of my life have different perceptions of me. Does that make sense? Okay. So people who know me from maybe like my early 30s to late 30s think, oh, Safina looks after herself, professional, reads a lot, keeps herself to herself. People who know me from my 20s are just like, girl who was sick on a bus a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. So it's really funny when I had, um, I've never really had all my friends together before, but I had a baby shower for my first baby. Um, and everyone came like from everywhere. And it was so funny watching people from different chapters of my life like mingle and be like nah Athena wouldn't do that and it's like you know what I was I did I did all those things but similarly people who know me from the past can't believe that yeah. you know that look at this man I got a dishwasher it's crazy you meet different people as you as you mature through age and yeah different lives like, I, can, I can imagine that yeah you do but it's not having said that yeah it's not like I've, I've never like stole a car or nothing like that it was more it's with me it was more my drinking um, my socialising not really having um, clear focus in life so for a long time I wasn't really doing I was just going to work and then going out drinking and then coming home and then going to work and I was really my whole thing was I hated missing out on things so if there was a motive anywhere like I was just on it but that looking back now I look at that and that was just me like I was like desperately searching for some like um, direction or purpose do you, you know, know what? As you as you mentioned about missing out on things, it's only the last good few years I've actually come to pass that this is what I was doing, mm. and this probably brings into play that a lot of where I'm at with my career and in my life. And it's, I would say that it was cemented for me after my back then passed. You know, what I mean, it was like I was following other people and following their dream, um, and I wasn't at no point have I looked at myself to say, what do you do? Because sometimes to grow, to, well, to grow, you're going to have to shed some people around you. And that doesn't mean that you're better than them, but there's that willingness to be a part of something, to be liked. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I relate to that. Like I said, we do mature different because that happened <laughs> the last couple of years. <laughs> Big old 50, 50 years old. We're doing this podcast like 20 years too late. <laughs> but I definitely um, was a follower um, for a long time. Um, and that was because, I guess it was also because of like low self-esteem. Like you don't, you might, you, you might even know what you want to achieve, but it takes you a long time to think that you can do it. So you just attach yourself to someone else's path. Um, and I was in a situation professionally where I was changing my jobs a lot. So it was, which, is, which suited me fine because there, there was like a whole new group of people for me to go out drinking with. Yeah. You know, and I, I loved I loved that. And when you when you're constantly meeting new people, you don't have to really 
reflect on yourself and change yourself and improve yourself because everyone's meeting you for the first time. Does that make sense? So when you've got someone who's been around you for a long time, they can see your growth or lack of growth and they can maybe talk to you about it or maybe you can be more aware of it. But when you're just meeting new people all the time and it's a, it's a and you're starting from zero and it was, I just, it's a hard to, it's kind of hard to explain, but I, I went through a period of basically zero personal growth and then I don't even, I don't even know what happened, but then one day I was just like, I can't, I can't be here forever. Like, I'm actually intrigued. This is really weird because I never do interviewing, but <laughs> being interviewed, you're fascinated with drinking and socialising. When when I was young, yeah, it was lack of confidence. So when I was drunk, I could then oh. be confident. That's so you never liked the drink. No, I love drinking. I'd like there's a, there's a, there's two sides of it. First of all, I really enjoyed drinking. Um, I enjoyed going out. I enjoyed, and I never did drugs. My brain, I, I'm highly confident if I did drugs, I'd have psychosis because my brain is already not like I feel like I'm. I always have a, not a constant headache, I just feel really lightheaded the whole time. I feel like if even weed, like any, I could never even imagine doing drugs, but um, drinking, yeah. So, first of all, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed um, the warm, fuzzy feeling, I enjoyed feeling comfort. I don't like dancing without drinking, so obviously, go out a lot, I've got a drink to enjoy that. Um, so, there was that. Uh, then there was everyone else was doing it, so it was the fitting in thing. Yeah. And then it became a point of, um, like, you can show off, right? If you can go out and if you drink five pints of Guinness and a bottle of wine and, like, make it home, you can see that. It sounds weird, but you just kind of, if you, you're almost proud of it. With, like, just be, being able to handle your drink is seen as something to be proud of in yeah. this country when it's why would you want to even test that that's right it's why you really, want to live it early yeah like it's just a weird thing to test but it was always like oh i can handle my drink but i think i think what you do generally is you sabotage your goals when you're young so you as an excuse for not achieving anything so i could say oh i could i could have been this really successful person but you know what i'm out drinking with my friends does that make sense you so, know what i don't know if you should relate it to but that's, that was me with woman. Yeah. So being around guys or womanizers, being around that macho. Would you would you have described yourself as a womanizer back in the day? No. Looking back now, I was a, I was a, and it was really funny. I wasn't I wasn't like the the person you look at and think oh. <laughs> but I know I had lyrics. So you would charm you would charm women. Yeah, and it was, but then you get, but then I realised I was just doing what I saw around me. Yeah, because I can't see you, don't. you're too nice. I can't see it. Yeah, that's how I have to get them. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and, and, and it's like, I just catch feelings. Yeah. So I read my mates just to sit next, just do the thing and bounce. That's catch feelings. That's lovely. So you couldn't, you, you weren't cut out for it. So you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to use an abuser's woman. But he'd be like, oh, but she's so, she's got such pretty eyes. Yeah, if there was something about her which I liked, yeah, I would hold on to that. And it was like, that's that thing about holding back and knowing yourself and recognizing yourself. There's, I was always searching for that. I'm the eldest in my family. I was always searching for something. I was always known for growing up. If I if I got a rumble tumble, I'll go chip Quincy back you up. Yeah. <clears throat> and then I just me and my mum are very tight, and I've always wanted. I've I've grown up with strong women of that Caribbean background who look after men. So you, I just tend to veer to it. And then obviously being around guys. So when you say about drink, 
I saw too much of my dad's and my family drink to my, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it was, yeah, I don't know if I can relate the two, but that was me with you. No, it is, it is. They're both things you do to try and fit in. They're things you do to try and fit in and give yourself a kind of personality. Um, not that you don't have a personality, but they're just things, oh, if this is like my identity, I can be known for this. And, um, and it means I can stay in my lane and I don't have to have any big ambitions and, and whatever. But I just stopped. I don't even know why I stopped. I think I stopped out of, um, it's hard. Once I started performing comedy, you work so hard. It's hard to kind of drink. I started kind of getting fit. So I started running and doing my exercise and I kind of enjoyed that. You could be a drinker in this circuit. No. And people are, and it destroys them. Yeah. It, it's destructive because you can't drive. Alcoholics here, Frank Skinner and those guys then covering alcoholics. Yeah. I mean, I've seen, you know, when I first started the circuit, I've seen the drinking, the drugs, is like, that was never me anyway. But I could see, yeah, socialising, your jokes, you're telling, you're drinking, you're telling jokes. It could easily fall into that cycle because that was the culture then for stand-ups. Yeah. Drink, smoke, which is a proper, to me, a proper comedy in a, in a room. Are you doing that? Well, we were at, we were at like twice, three days a week. You should do that three days a week, every week. And there's mileage in that. So you're not doing that on your doorstep. You're nope. travelling all around the country. And you know the promoters like to feed you drink. Yeah. yeah. Drinks free. <laughs> no, I never, that's the one thing I never, and even when I was on the open mic circuit, I would never, I was, it was never, partly because I was really antisocial. So some, two things changed about me. I was, uh, I was, um, I stopped drinking and I started to get very selective about who I spent my time with. Because I never used to be selective. I'd just be like, oh, okay, you, you got a heartbeat, we can hang out. Yeah, um, yeah. Just because it was a combination of being friendly and also wanting to be liked as well. So rather than saying this person's a waste of time, it would just be another person that could possibly like me, you know? Um, and But I changed that and thank goodness I did because if you hang out with everybody you meet in comedy, like if you literally hang out after every show, yeah. chat to people, get to know them, it's just, it's not unsustainable. It's just totally unsustainable. So with, with comedy, you mm. said you're on the circuit. Mm. How, you've always done what we call the mainstream circuit, or, yeah. you know, I say, I say white gigs, so it's, but it's the mainstream circuit. Is that where you started? Did you start off on white shows or black shows? Black shows. Okay. I've done f three or four black shows, and then I was asked to do a, a, a white gig, and it was the first. So <clears throat> growing up in pubs, Round pubs. Yeah. I didn't go in pubs. To me, pubs for white people. That's not my culture. Never really knew. So when I got my first gig. Yeah. It was in a pub. What the fuck? I was more anxiety about going in the pub in a function room than actually telling the jokes. <laughs> so I, I started in the black circuit with a I come here at the time called In, in the House, um, which is a guy called Bert Laurent back in the day. And um, he had Slim and Justin G. And uh, then the comedy store opened up as a comedy store. It was, like every, it was every, every Monday, first, every month on a Monday. Done a couple of those shows. Then I done a Wolfram Stowe show. Died on my ass. <laughs> and I think that at the time, I know why I died because 
they wasn't used to his black guy talking cockney. Okay. Um, and I made a, a beeline to say, I don't, I'm not here to trivialise Beijing's. So I'm not just going to do Beijing jokes and that's my niche and there's a lot more to me. So anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think out, out of my little crop of comedians, I was probably one of the first to go and do the white circuit and regular. And what would you, was, what was, do you think that, so I think as a comedian, one of the biggest schools you can have is to play any room. Yeah. That's what I think. I think that it's all very well, like, no matter what success you have in life, if you're a comedian that can play any room, you're probably better to me all than right. a comedian that does the O2, even though I probably prefer to do that O2, given the choice. Yeah, but yeah. in terms of skill and talent, if you're the guy that can go to play any room, that makes you better. Did you see doing Waikiki as an opportunity to like just like become a better comic? Or would you I just go, oh, I'll just take the money? And no, just a gig. Yeah, just another gig. Just another gig and just developing my name. And I think I was more happy again that they, I rang up and they said, yeah, come along. And even though it was open open mics. Yeah. But it was just the fact of, when you start, when you do black shows, because we do shows, we yeah. do clubs and circuit. So to do a show, you could put bums on seats. <clears throat> I was known for DJing. Yeah. I wasn't known for comedy. So this comedy audience, people knew me, but they knew me as a funny guy from the area. These are the black shows. Black shows, yeah. yeah. So the fact, so when you try to get on a show, you bring up on the black promoters and oh, I don't know who you are. So it's all right. So, but the white circuit, they just yeah, come. Yeah, you can get you can get the the advantage to the white circuit is that you don't get paid very well, particularly at the beginning, but you get stage time. And the opportunities were. We're bigger then. Yeah. As in the case of, you never know who's going to see you. And it's that thing of, just mentality is like, someone can see you and you can have a little something about you and say, you know, I like that. Yeah. Can you use that in a TV show? Black Circuit, it's like, can you put bums in seats? Yeah, yeah. Is this guy or girl going to be funny? How much people's coming through this door? You know what I mean? And it's more pressure probably from the Black Circuit to book you if they don't know you. That's why I've changed that notion. Yeah. Do you, why do you think more black comics, particularly from like the time you started, have, haven't gone into the mainstream? So is it because they haven't been playing the circuit or because the circuit has like not been interested in them? Or is it a bit of both? Black comics, my own. I just didn't think they did. It wasn't for them. Yeah. It wasn't for them. Slim never done as much mainstream shows as I did, but he was he's far more prolific than I was. Yeah. He's known in the circuit. And then if you're one of the mainstream black comics and you're eating food regular, why would you want to? If it's, yeah, if it's serving you, why, why fix, why change it? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually. And not just that, it's like you're in your comfort zone. Yeah. And this is where, I've only thought about this recently, but this is where I think that what, what maybe was lacking in the circuit back then that is changing now is management. Ooh. Because it is a manager who will say to you, you're doing fine now, but these are all the things you could have if you did X, Y, and Z, you know? And it's like, you think about, you know, maybe back in the day, was there anybody kind of looking at all the artists and saying, actually, from a, like an industry point of view, and saying- No, there wasn't. There was no, that, that guidance. There was, all you had was, there's a couple of promoters or guys who looked after the black comics, 
who booked them for their shows um, and to make money. Yeah. They're putting on the show. They weren't thinking of, right, these bunch of comics, let me, um, look, the prior, pr- the, the blade example is this, is Slim. Yeah. Slim has now got TV opportunities after nearly 25 years doing this. It's thing. mad, isn't it? And it's it's uh, almost it's almost a shame. Like, why is it taking this long? Because we where we where he was, and as much as they earned money off him, and I'm not saying that in a disrespectful way, mm. but they never thought, well, how can we um, take this guy who's the best comic in the UK comics comic, yeah, and take it to the next level, and not even. They were trying to knock on the mainstream's door. Mainstream wasn't interested. They were inter- they're not interested in the black circuit. Yeah. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Um, instead of, if I was managing Slim or what you know now, it's like don't wait for people to take you to the next level. Create your own lane. Mm. Do that Tyler Perry thing because they will come coming. You create your own lane, and we're seeing it now. Black shows numbers don't lie. Yeah. Our shows sell out. I've I, I've I've done shows in Bluesby Theatre, yeah, in different theatres, and brought in more people than name acts. Yeah. <clears throat> so the numbers don't lie, but we just didn't take that. Think of it from a business point. It's of like view. how do you sell it? How do you say, show people this is what 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 we're doing? There are kind of there are mainstream acts who are doing really well. And they'll go to Edinburgh and they'll play to like 14 people, 10 people, one people, whatever. And it's like, that's unthinkable for people on, on the that's black right. market. It's and unthinkable. You just, it's just unimaginable. And they do massive tours. Yeah. And they're giving away tickets. Mm. I mean, and they're excellent comics. But like I said, if you put in the, 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 the main black comics on a show, it will sell. The social media thing changed the game, I think. If you yeah. if you learned how to use it to for like your art, like and yeah, it that's that's like I'm basically what you're saying that was the way to show people these are the numbers we're doing. Because if you're sending out a Hackney Empire, was that that three thousand tickets? I can't remember. Um, but that's fine. But on the, if you make a video, that's millions. That's views. right. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of views. So and that's undeniable, and that's not just in London. No one can no one can write off and say, "Oh, that's just black people. That's just black people buying tickets. That's just Hackney. That's fine. That's that's national. In fact, it's not national. It's international." I've done two videos on social media and went viral. Yeah. One of them is naturally, I did it. My phone was going nuts, but I I made the mistake. You can hear my voice. You can't see my face. Yeah. So I done the commentary, the Barbados relay team. <laughs> and that is still getting shown today yeah to the point that somebody I, I was just my son showed me someone mimicking my voice on a TikTok um, and then I done a Barbados both through both Bajan ones but that's gone worldwide yeah and uh, if I had that notion of that when I was when social media first started it, it, it my, the game would have changed probably I think what you've got to do is you've got to be consistent and like do it all the time like you can't you can't take your foot off the gas it's almost like every day a new video every day you got and that's actually not easy no it's not easy I think it's really hard I can't do it like and this is why I relate to yourself and I was, look, I was raising I was raising sons yeah and my, uh, my sons are living with me I've got my daughter and it was like my career was like I need to raise my family first so I've done the circuit I got help from both sides of the family, but it was literally, I was raising my family. 
my boys are off age now, so now it's like it's my time now, isn't it? Yeah. My my time came after social media. <laughs> so <laughs> you had your kids at the wrong time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just it's just wrong timing. That's all. Just one of the kind of things. I should really get my children to do the social media, but. Is what it is. But it's not. It's not. It's it's kind of like two things. It is that it is the key to elevating yourself to a certain position. But it's not the be all and end all. There's lots of people who are very successful about it too. I think. I think it can be. This is what we were saying earlier about looking at other people and like trying yes. to be like them. It's really easy to look at someone, especially as a creative, and be like, oh god, why didn't I do that? But actually, there are very specific circumstances in our lives that mean it's not for us. You know, them kind of social media videos where you just do like a, a 60 second joke and you film it yourself. You know, that's not really for me. I'm too introverted for a start. Like I'm just too introverted to just put on voices mm. and do characters. So if I force myself to do those things, A, I'll just be unhappy because it's not me. And I'll just be doing something I don't enjoy. But secondly, it just come out rubbish. And you're forcing it. <laughs> you know, you're forcing it. You know, what am I? I'm a writer and I'm a stand up, you know, and... I do, like I do a lot of comedy writing now, that's what some people who do social media couldn't do. That's right. You know what I'm saying? So it's all, it's like you have to find what what suits, what you can do what, and what suits you. And, and this is where I go back to the music and the, the music now, I, I mean, I still play, but not as like I did different before, but doing the radio, I'm more than just a guy to do a video for 60 seconds yeah. and do a Beijing accent or talk about something silly about some put food out there and custard food I talk about issues so let's talk about Supreme FM because yeah. you've got your show in Supreme FM what's yeah. your what's your ambition for the, for the show oh, tell me tell me about how that works and what you so basically Supreme there. when I first started on Supreme I was just playing music and then one day I left all my vinyl I left half my vinyl in my house and I said I haven't got enough music for life so you so you're at a gig and you forgot all your vinyl basically. No, no, I was at, I was doing my radio. I was going oh, to do my radio show. Yeah, yeah, Supreme. So um, I selected my music. What I'm going to play. I don't know what happened, but I took the wrong bag or something. So my show was like three hours, and I'm like, and I got there and it's like, oh, I had about eight records. <laughs> I'm like, what am I supposed to? And I and I just done a talk show. I didn't plan it. I just gave us I basically said that no us as stand ups when we if you mess up stuff you acknowledge it. Yeah. I acknowledged it on the radio. I acknowledged that I forgot my music and I said, What would you do in and I put it out there on the on the FM and then the phones were going nuts. Yeah. And that's how you got your talk show. That's how you started that concept. Yeah. Okay. I was doing scenarios at first and then I started to talk about certain issues. Um, and it was like a little silly, you know, I mean, black man, white girl relationship. Just, 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 just a real regular. Crap. So if you wanna, if you want the phone lines to light up, yeah, that's that's the, that's the go-to topic. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, uh, in um, homosexuality, just all, all the all the kind of things which you know black people are gonna react to. Yeah. You know what I mean? I remember I done one talk, one one show, one time, and this has been as a comedian now because we, because we travel, we're meeting different people. I was I'm. Yeah. I'm from a world that is very male-dominated, very geezer-dominated, so certain subject matters are, like, they're off-limits. So I remember there was a big story back then of a top DJ who was being filmed, who was filmed doing sexual acts with premiership footballers. Really? Right. I don't remember but this. But they was, like, doing games. Mm. Yeah. 
Anyway, this guy was a big DJ. And I remember there was, I knew he was, but enough of the guys on, on the DJ circuit were disowning him. And, I, and that's, that was another social conscious awakening for me. Because I went on the radio, because I could easily go on that radio and, and continued. Like it, was, it was like before, like social media, cancel culture before yeah. cancel culture was like fashion. And I, mem- and I remember like, do I go on in and do the norm and say, boy, I don't know what Jamaica for, but <laughs> what them boys do? What do you think what that guy did? And then I know what cause is going to come in, but do I, if I love my community, I care about my community, do I? When you care about it, you challenge your community. Yeah. So I remember I'd done a show and I, and I, it was, that was in my first time of being conscious and, the power, the power of radio, because I, I basically said, "So let me get this straight. You've raved to this guy, bump fists, defended him, acknowledged the style of music he plays, and because he, not if you, you know, he has a se- sexual preference, you're gonna just diss that." Yeah. So that to me is the most ignorant. Because I'm not changing towards him. Because if you if you are going to change towards him, then but you would not you would cut him off. But you listen to Luther. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you will, if that's the case. Although wear designer clothes and the designers are all gay. Right. You know? and, and this is and yeah. this is when my social. I didn't need to be told that. It was just my social awareness was. Well, you know what? These are the conversations I need to be having in my with, with, with the people listening to this because I know. The guys, the people listen to that station don't talk like this. Yeah. And it goes back to what I was saying about the womanising. I, it was, it's, you know what I mean? You catch feelings. So this isn't me. You know what I mean? So but, you're just, you're basically a considerate person and you think things through. Right. And it might be that age goes over 25, so you might have seen something <laughs> by then. <laughs> I think what you're saying is, what I've noticed, particularly in our community too, is sometimes we don't make decisions based on us processing facts and logically we look around us and we say, well, this is we. This is our tribe and the tribe has decided this. So like before we started recording, we talked about the vaccine um, and how a lot of people aren't taking it. But my thing, which is what I said was, it's not about people not taking it, it's the reasons why. And it's almost the same thing as what happened with your footballer. I don't think in, on an individual basis, some of those people would have had a problem with him, but externally they would have seen all the people around them have a problem. That's right. And they'd have been like, yo, I don't want anyone to think I'm less black than I am. Um, I don't want to. Re- I don't want to be rejected from my community. So in order to not be rejected, I have to have this position. And I swear to God, I feel the same thing about this vaccine. I think half these people don't give a shit, but they feel like if they take it, they're going to be rejected by all the people around them that are saying don't take it. Um, and that's stopping them from maybe finding out information off of their own, off of that, off of their own energy, um, in their own way. I, th- I think that. Are we speaking from a, a black perspective? I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that the black community, um, from my perspective, I haven't taken it yet. And ain't and I've got on the radio, I said it ain't because I, I disagree with it, but I, how it's being administered in the sense of the rhetoric be, of the people behind it. It's like, you, if we go by as a, as a, as a race of, indiv- of people, black people, we are still very much um, abused. Mm. 
we we're still very much in society very much the uh, the 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 child who's been molested for many of the years yeah and my my issue it isn't so much of because i i don't issues with vaccine because i've taken vaccines i've taken I, I don't take tablets like i did before but there's a reason for that but i've taken some form of drugs to make me better mm. but for me it's like i've said the only way I'm taking this, like my dad's past, is for me to go and take my dad back. Yeah, and that's but that's might be my attitude towards. I will only take drugs mm. if if he's on my uh, if I'm on death's door, because I've seen my ex partner pass because she's she she have a paper cut she pop painkillers. Mm. So when it, when it mattered, the, the the drugs never worked because yeah. her body was immune to it. So. This is just my, that's partly my issue. I, I don't think that we feel that we will be jilted. Yeah, you might get the odd idiot who tell us, hey, take that thing. Yeah. yeah but, but they're taking most heinous weed and, and, and drinking. <laughs> they're drinking like the worst rum. <laughs> worst they're rum. 10 pound Tesco's yeah, rum or whatever. Like, I ain't got time for analysis those people. But for me, it's just, um, the, the people behind it are governments, unfortunately. You've never, ever shown me anything or my communities that you give a shit. And if we, even if I do take this, how is my life going to change? I'm still going to be that guy. If I walk behind you, you're still going to be weary. You've kind of like hit the nail on the head with, with something that I've thought. And that is that it's been clear from the start that it's been not just black people, but non-white communities that don't are into this vaccine. And the government, rather than say, saying how are we gonna, how are we gonna dissuade people from being suspicious, how are we gonna explain that this vaccine is safe, have just ignored it, and they've let the um, they've let people people's suspicion they've let it run rife, and that's because they don't care about us. So there's a real, there's a real irony here. We don't trust the vaccine because the government doesn't care about us. The government will not force us to take it because they don't care about us. So, and that's what's always bothered me. So I've taken that vaccine myself. Mm. I've had two jabs. And the reason being, I've got the privilege of having people in my family. I've got virologists, I've got immunologists, I've got GPs. When I say my family, I mean my partner's yeah, family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> my, Your circle. Yeah, yeah, my circle. Um, so I've got people who are kind of behind that line, who are in that world, who, and I have access to their information and their conversations, like literally, I know I know someone who was in, um, not like the Cobra meetings, but like yeah, yeah. them kind of high level in that in that kind of you know in very privileged positions to be literally sat next to the people who you see on the TV the next day. So I'm able to sort the facts from fiction, but also I'm able because nobody knows I'm not, I'm not an expert but I'm pretty well informed about what white people have done to black people like it's literally yeah. it's, it's my specialist subject to mastermind I'm going to go and mastermind and the guy's going to go what's the subject I'm going to be like white people <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. and I'm going to talk about everything I'm going to talk yeah. about how they tested um, so they're in sections on us I'm going to talk about Namibia I'm going to talk about yeah. South Africa I'm going to talk about Haiti I'm going to talk about it all I can't fucking wait Quincy for that day to come so no one, so, but, so I'm, in a, so my thing is like, it's, this vaccine isn't about the government wanting to harm people. It is about the government doing whatever it takes to, to fix the economy, which is different. 
Yes. And so have they rushed out a vaccine too quickly in order to get us back to work? And I think that's the conversation we need to have rather than the, I don't trust government, they hate us. They hate everyone, especially this particular government. They hate a class of people. They hate a class of people, class absolutely. People. Yeah. Uh, do you know, I look at this how the vaccine agenda and the COVID, I look at, you know, remember you was, I don't know if you were you, but when you was young and your parents at work, and your mum and dad, or your mum, well, I'd say your mum, no, your mum, said to you, make sure the house is clean before I come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then you just done your thing, and then your mum was like, literally downstairs, and you were rushing to clean. This is, this is what our government... It was really weird watching the news, and it's still happening now, where the news would be like, oh, we've done... X, X million jabs today or X million jabs today and, and it's like a league table of jabs like a race and I was like this is the strangest race I've ever yeah. I've been part of and it's feeding again into the idea of something not being quite right about this about our bodies being used um, as an experiment for some for other game like the government don't care whether this is safe or not what they do care is whether they get to win the vaccination race now which is as, like yeah exactly now as it happens like I haven't seen, I've seen lots of circumstantial stuff to say, oh, the vaccine might not be safe. So for example, it's not FDA approved in America, which is, I can't, I can't remember what FDA means, but that's what the Americans use to, to yeah. approve drugs. Uh, it's approved in this country, but not in America. That's a fairly, a good reason, I think, not to take it. I've read, um, I've read about Dr. Fauci's been taken to court on, on, the, back, on, on the back of, um, just the same kind of claims is led is giving people advice without it. I'm going to Google this. Me. I'm going to Google this now. Dr. Fauci taking the court. Yeah, I've got it. I've got some dog and bone. I'm going to, let me, let me look at this. But anyway, the point, um, Do I always want... made myself a witness. Okay. Anyway, I've, but I've never, I've not seen anything that makes me think, um, Okay, this is this is wrong. In fact, um, my last last person I had on a podcast is a, a virologist. Her name's Ria, Ria Lina. You know, do you know Ria? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So she, and she was she basically just took me through why you can get a vaccine for COVID quick as opposed to like Ebola or whatever. And I, I, and she basically said, you make a vaccine, you got to test it, right? But not to test it, you got to test it in a population that's been exposed to the virus. Now, if for other viruses. Um, you can't do that because you can't expose people to Ebola and you can't even go to a region that's been exposed to Ebola. It's a highly dangerous thing, right? However, COVID, because it spreads like the flu, you can test it in a natural population because that population has been exposed to it. And she also said that because it's a SARS virus, which has been, there's been SARS outbreaks over the past 15, 20 years. She was like, they were halfway there anyway. Anyway. So they were halfway there anyway. Um, and on top of that, they could test it really easily because you can go to a thousand people and you can test whether or not they've had the virus. And that's a good way to do it because you know it's in the population. Whereas you can't test people of Enfield for Ebola and be like, oh, we've got an Ebola vaccine that works. Like, it's not the vaccine. No one has it here. But I mean, you, you, I mean <laughs> sometimes people wander around you think, do you have Ebola? But no, no, no. It's, it's... So, that, so I think that's what it is. It's those kind of conversations that need to happen. And that's what the government should have done at the beginning to make people at least say, I'm not going to take it, but I'm not going to take it 
based on me having the facts in front of me rather than I'm not going to take it based on what I do know based on rather than based on what I don't know. I think definitely COVID has and the way it's been managed has made people it sent everyone actually to be to for want of a better word a bit mad. Do you know what I mean? We can't think straight. We were locked in our houses for a year and a half. We couldn't work. Do you know what I mean? We couldn't earn money the way we normally earn money. Lots of people couldn't. Um, we had to, uh, you know, my mum was locked in a house for a year cause she, or whatever, because she had to self-isolate. Um, and that was a hard thing. That I think that's traumatic. I think it's a trauma. And now we're coming out of that, this trauma and we're expected to have trust in this government, this government that wastes wasted money, this government that has lied to us repeatedly. This is a government that has... Um, um basically given contracts to their friends it's a corrupt government i think that's i think we can confidently say it's a it's a corrupt government um and now we're supposed to trust them um i can't trust no government with the leader don't even fix his hair to this is a, he doesn't he, this is a really good point no, so like, like, like this person we're supposed to say we're supposed to believe him when he says this max vaccination program is, is safe when you're right he can't even look in the mirror for he's like, or, but worse still, he purposely gives us this impression of a scarecrow because he cho- he chooses this. Um, so that's what I. You that's... can't tell me how much picking you got. <laughs> you, exactly. You can't, you I don't know how much children. I mean, he doesn't know anything. I always say this. I haven't got an issue. I don't fear the dictator. I fear the people who follow the dictator. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they're the ones who who would like do anything to keep that person in power. And this is who we got as a leader. I don't fear him, you know. It means the people like well, people vote for him, and I think that's one of the things. That's one of the things that has made me more questioning of of what this place is as a society, because people talked about being anti-racist, and in the last general election, saying we can't vote for Jeremy Corbyn because we're anti-racist, and he doesn't like Jewish people. And I was like, well, if we're going to be really anti-racist, you've got to stay at home on election day. Because what's on offer? You've basically got two people who have, have both said and done very problematic things. And I would say one has done said and done problematic things with way more frequency than than, than the other. Um, and then and I, I always use Windrush as an example for this. Like I just always found it I find it extraordinary that we that we are tolerating the situation at the Home Office at the moment. It's yeah. intolerable. I don't. I don't want to change this podcast. It's just no. It's just not, trust me. I talk about I talk about this all the time. I find. You don't. You can wake up every day and find a new story about somebody who has who's has been put through hell. Their family have had to pay thousands of legal fees. They've not been able to work. They're not able to claim benefits. Um, imagine the mental stress that causes. And you know, th- being threatened to be sent somewhere they've not seen for 30, 40 years. You know, it's it's extraordinary. Um, and this is happening to human beings. People have died. They have deported people, and those people have died overseas. There are people who have died whilst trying to sort out their immigration status. There are people who've had cancer and couldn't get treatment because um, um, because of the rules about getting treatment if you're not considered a national of this country. I mean, it's just extraordinary, the lack of um, anger. And, and to be fair, not even just in what black communities too, we're just getting on with it. It's like, like we're just, it's what, why, why, why do I feel like when, why isn't every, black person with any profile going on strike over this no, do you know no. what I mean I, I, I scream it all the time as well I scream it all the time I think that the, the, the lack of respect they have shown my parents our parents generation yeah is the most you know what I mean and but then, then I say as well at some point my parents generation got to take some responsibility because they've allowed it 
there's there's something Someone's... to be yeah there's something to be said about a lot of a lot of a lot of the elders their response to why didn't you get it sorted was it was too trusting they were like we we, we just thought it'd be fine we've been here for a long time and we thought it'd be okay and i read a lot of interviews with people who were affected by windrush and that was the spirit of it it was like well i just thought I, I just trust. I just trusted it. I I thought I'm, I've I come here in 1964. So what's the problem? Because they looked they looked at this country as a my parents said it. It was it was the motherland. Yeah. It was their motherland mm. because that's how it was paraded to them, and that level of trust. So they they won't do that to us. Yeah. We, we've helped, and as as you know, for as you all know for experience, you know what I mean. And to be fair, this immigration system issue has been around for a long time before it even became high profile, and we were going through it, and we weren't even shouting about it. We were just, we were just, we were so programmed to just see it as exceptional or or whatever. To see, oh, we're going through this terrible thing, but this is still a good place for black people, you know. Um, so that I can't remember how we got to this on the subject, um, but yeah, it's 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 maddening, and it's not going to end, and it's not going to end whilst we have this government, which which people are voting for. But going back to the vaccine thing, yeah, my thing is like we're in a really sticky place and a really frustrating place, which is we're not taking it because we don't trust the government and the government don't like us, so they don't want us to take it. I can tell you right now, if it was middle class white people who were vaccine hesitant, they would be information everywhere. They would be very clear about where it came from, how it was tested, what the benefits are, what the so if there's a really there's a really well cited statistic about the the vaccine causing clots. But yeah. the, 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 you are more likely to get a clot taking a contraceptive pill. Right? Now, I know men out there are not going to ask their girlfriends or wives to stop right. taking the pill, right? No, you knew that. Yeah, when you take the pill, you have to get your blood pressure tested at least once a year. Um, and you will have certain examinations done um, when, when, you, when it's prescribed to you. Um, no matter what pill you get, there's different kinds. Uh, it's a, the concept of pill. Like the injection or...? Um, I'm not sure, actually, but definitely the pill. Um, I don't know. This is, generally speaking, female contraception has all kinds of risks. Anything that involves changing your hormones. And on top of, mm. on top of getting clots, mood, um, spots. So I've got spots now because of the, the pill that I'm on. Um, so anyway, that, that, let's park that. Why isn't this wildly, wild, like why isn't this shared? Or When you buy medication, you get a big leaflet, okay? And in that leaflet is, these are the risks, okay? There's risks whenever you administer any kind of medicine. Okay, I'm not saying that you sh- that you're foolish to not think about the risk of COVID. But what I am saying is, it's not the first medicine that's going to make you sick, and it ain't the last medicine that's going to make you sick. So it's kind of like placing it within that context. Now, like I said, if middle class white people were asking these questions, we would have very readily available answers. Unfortunately, because it's mostly black and brown people and mostly working class people, they're like, fine, don't take it. We're going to protect ourselves, and you can just do what you like. There's a reason why they're take. This is how this the thing that makes me think I think I think this vaccine is is not as unsafe as people think it is is they're not sending it to Africa. They are taking all the doses for themselves. They're manufacturing it in South Africa. Do you know this? The Johnson Johnson as it happens, I wouldn't take the Johnson Johnson vaccine because that company is is pretty pretty awful. Yeah. But they're manufacturing it in South Africa and they put in the contract. You cannot manufacture this unless you sell it all back to us. Could you imagine? So there's a con, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is this is this is wild, and they put it in a contract now. Um, it's in the new. If anyone wants to, it's in the New York Times. I read this today. 
It's an expose. And this is probably in the contracts for a lot of the places, in a lot of the places where there's vaccines being manufactured. So in India, for example, there's no vaccines in India, but they're making them all there, right? Because the Europeans are saying, make the vaccines and give them to us. Anytime you've got something that white people are taking and they are denying it to us, you have to think to yourself, why don't they want us to have it? Because they don't care. <laughs> they, 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 don't want, they don't care if we catch COVID and die, you know? So, this is why, this is why I'll say it again. We, are dis we distrust the government because they don't like us. Because they don't like us, they're not going to make us trust them. They're not going to have the conversations with us they need to have, okay, to... Medical racism is a thing, okay? Neglect in our communities is a thing. Are they yeah. going to have conversations with us to make us understand how this is not the case right now? Of course not. They don't want us to say... So that's, what, that's the, th the, the place where we're in. Is that's that playing to um, well, black women at a dying at high, higher rate? They don't have that conversation at childbirth. Yeah, and they... And they don't have that conversation. And exactly. They've been presented with evidence. They've, and I have personal uh, experience of, of the healthcare system, uh, which makes me believe very much in that statistic. And it's not belief, it's an actual statistic. But I have experiences that make me understand why that could be the case. And they were presented with this information. They said... We're dying more than other people. There's something wrong with the healthcare system. And their response was, was muted at best. Basically, their recommendations were nothing, you know, because they don't care if it, like, and we, we know, we just know for a fact that if it was any, if it was a white demographic, if it was a white middle class demographic, they would be like, okay, let's sort this out. Mm. You know? And the childbirth thing's really interesting because in this country, very few women die in childbirth anyway. So for it to be such a scarce event, and yet it still is something that massively disproportionately affects black women, and then beneath that, um, South Asian women, that's a real problem. I'll just repeat that I'm, I'm in a privileged position of having access to people who, who, who are able to explain things to me that the government aren't explaining to me. And this is, and they're saying people around you, these are the, the images and the, the figures that our young people need to see. Yes on our TV screens for, for on a regular basis, not just now, because if as much as you might know these people and, and they're knowledgeable, if you stick one of them on TV and say, well, take this, they're not going to listen. Because I don't see those people regular in my everyday life on uh, This Morning or News at Night. I don't see them people talking, talking that smack. So why, why are you rolling that now? Going back to what you were saying is you're privy to these conversations because mm. this is the circle you move with and this is and, and you've got a more invested interest the relationship with them and this is where this country is and our government has um, dropped down the vacuum we have in this country and it is a big vacuum is that we don't really have a very visible connected and amplified black middle class and what i mean by that I'm not saying our oh, middle class people are more believable, no. more, but what we don't have is kind of like almost like spokespeople, you know. So when Windrush happened, we were all individually very frustrated and angry, but we didn't have a like, yeah, we didn't have a body or an entity or an organization that we could have the confidence in to speak on our behalf. And similarly, in the, the COVID situation, we don't really have this thing that like, connects us to like, like the, the Muslim government, Muslim Brotherhood. But, uh, or like um, there's loads of like Jewish organisations that do, do yeah, that yeah, for the Jewish community uh, there's their uh, there are things that do it for like the East Asian community we don't have that apart and a lot of that comes from the fact that we don't really have a black middle class because it's something that naturally happens 
when you get a whole bunch, when a, when a high enough percentage of people in the community have money, you get newspapers, you get radio stations, you get, um, you, you and you get people who, like the Trevor McDonald's as well, connect themselves to, you know? So you, you don't get, I guess at the moment when you get a black person and they're prominent, they almost are seen by white people as, oh, you're not like them. You know what I mean? Because they can't connect them to like a wider kind of black interest group or movement or anything. It's just like, oh, there's an individual there and he's and he's black. When you think about the Premier League, the Premier League is what, 60% black men? Yeah. So think about when you, oh, if you're a young kid and you want to play become a Premier League footballer, I think your odds of getting into Premier League are about 100 to 1. This is an actual statistic. I think every season there's like 100,000 players. I think it's more than that. It's like 120 to 1. But And these are the most elite sportsmen in our country. Most elite, most best paid, um, most famous... But, you know, what, how are we better off for this situation? Imagine, they were, imagine it was Chinese people. Imagine it was Indians. And imagine is, what that would mean. This is the thing. And after, a majority of those black footballers, they, just be, they don't go into management. No. Nope. They, they don't go in board levels. It's very sporadic. And this is like, as in, I'm a lover of football, but it's that thing of we being in, in the system and how much the country cares from a business perspective, because we can have black middle classes, because there is no reason, as much as he's a, a, as a person, as a footballer, Raheem Sterling, respect him, but he ain't being a manager. Yeah, I mean, he, he ain't going to be the next um, owner of Man City or whatever. I'm not saying that he can't, but, but they would but never allow him to they, be. They, they would allow him. They would to never be. allow. They would never allow him to be in that position. And it goes back to what you were saying about who do you see on TV talking about certain issues who have you know when when do you see black people talking and what they're talking about and it's very rarely talking about something that's going to uplift us and it's very rarely about them doing something that you it's it's sport it's entertainment whatever and that's the frustrating thing and that's why i that's why i do what i do on social media that's why i do have this podcast and i'm like well okay fine maybe one day this will be amplified enough so i can be one of the one of those voices um but the there's a reason why we don't have a very established middle, black middle class in this country, and that's because it would be too effective. Yeah. It would be too effective, um, and it would make us too prosperous. It would make us educate ourselves outside of the education system, um, and it would make us buy property, you know? It would make us invest um, in things. It would make us marry each other, okay? The uh, the person you marry, that's a political decision as well as a personal decision, but if you look at the Premier League, I mean, this comes across, this always comes across as bitter, and it's not bitter, but if you look at the no, richest no, no, black no, men no, in this country, yeah, the richest black men in this country, and it applies to black women too, we're not marrying each other. So what does that say about our, um, about us? What does it say? If, if there's one thing that I would like to talk about more in like the black community, and particularly the working class, black working class communities, it's like the idea that football and sport in general is like a way out of, a way out of hardship. I think it is, if you make it. If, if you make it if you don't make it the time you spend doing football is time you could have invested doing lots of other productive things and I'm not saying that you shouldn't follow your dreams but what I am saying is make sure that's not an ultimate thing so I can tell you this now my eldest son was at Tottenham and a squad of 20 something players yeah, I would say at least 16 of those players were black young black men yeah. Do you know the only player who's become professional? There's a couple of become professional players, but do you know the only player who's, who has, who is successful out of that squad? Who? Harry Kane. 
Wow. England captain. And he never really got no game time in, his, in the youth system. But I mean, he's a good player, but it just shows that there's enough of those youths out there. Like my son, up to his, How old is your son now? 28. Yeah. So up to 15 years old, between eight, seven years. There's other things. I mean, we put other things in front of him, but my son was blinded. Yeah. And it, he said, why am I putting the piano in front of my son? And he's like, then I can kick a ball and earn 90 grand a week. Yeah, exactly. And that dream is really, I mean, like I said, 120,000 to one, if that is, um, and it's, and I don't think, because we are exposed to football almost daily, you know, because we're exposed to footballers so, so much, we don't understand, we don't have a concept as to how elite they are. They're, we're talking about the best, to be a Premier League footballer, you've got to be one of the best footballers in the world. Right? So there's 7 billion people in the world. <laughs> you know, So you can dedicate yourself to your craft and you can, you can put all your energy into it and you can practice, 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 practice and you can eat the right things and you can do all your sit-ups and you can do all your pull-ups and you can train and you can watch football, you can train and you might not. And it means nothing because it's a lottery. It's a lottery. And, that's the, and I wish we understood that more. I hated people talking about Raheem Sterling's narrative. I don't want young working class boys who are struggling financially to think they're going to be next to Raheem Sterling. I want them to think they're going to be the next accountant or the next lawyer the next, or the next doctor. The next person who gives Raheem Sterling the money. Yeah, you know, exactly. The next property mogul, the next business owner, the next clothes designer. Do you know what I mean? Um, the next anything. They, you could, the next anything. They, they, you know, there's any open up a university perspective it's so big there's shitloads you can do right yeah. um, and that narrative the reason why they kept telling us that narrative because like yeah we still want you in that lane we still want you giving this information to your children um, and we don't want them thinking any different and that's not to say I don't respect Raheem Sterling for um, that's not to say I don't respect him for his journey and where he's gotten to and his family for supporting him but we're not all going to be there's only 20, there's only 11 people in England squad Right, so we're, what, we're gonna, we just want to save eleven black boys. That's it. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So that narrative, um, that narrative. Oh, sorry, I don't know. I have to shut this off. Um, so that narrative is really destructive to us. Um, really destructive um, and unproductive, and it keeps us where we're at. And it's a real shame. Yeah, I'm just. But that's that's yeah. Um, okay, I've got to go pick up my child. <laughs> so that's, that's a bit of an excuse, and then if I'm, you know, I mean, the child always children come first. Yeah, um, Quincy, thank you so much. We didn't even talk about the Polari. Just uh, just a shout out to the Polari. Just for people who won't know this, I made Polari once, and I swear every time I see you, you mention this bloody Polari. <laughs> <laughs> every time I see you, I must have put it on Instagram. And every time, I, most times when I see you, it, I, you mention it. So I thought I'd make you Polari today. Yeah, Polari is nice, man. Uh, I'm glad you enjoy it. Quincy, thank you for coming around to keep my company. I really uh, enjoy this chat. Anytime, anytime, appreciate it. In these trouble times. <laughs>
not so well, but he's always said, Athena, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do. I see what you're trying to do with your art and I appreciate it. And that has done wonders for me. Without that support, I don't know if I'd even be doing comedy because you need that. You need someone to see you fail and like you as well as the people uh, who see you do well and think you're great. You need people to see what you're trying to do, even if what you're trying to do isn't quite working at that time, if that makes sense. Anyway, whatever, Quincy's uh, a support with me. And if you want to be a support with him, find him on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can find Supreme FM on the internet too just google it and you can find out the details about his shows he talks to people from the community and he has really positive and interesting conversations and he platforms a lot of people on that show of his as well so big up supreme fm and big up quincy for all the work he does on it i'm athena Kabenu. you know that already i'm a stand-up comedian writer podcaster and you know a little bit of this a little bit of that if you want to support me and you don't already uh, follow me on my socials i'm on twitter and instagram uh, and on facebook Two, if you like this podcast, do what you do a podcast that you like. Um, share, rate. I feel a bit funny asking you to do this because I don't really do it to podcasts I like. But if you fancy it and you've got the time, do a comment on your podcasting platform that you use or share it or rate it or, or whatever. Look, thank you for getting to the end of this podcast and we'll catch up next time. <laughs>